Welcome to the Outsider Theory Podcast, where we explore the mutations of theories outside of the authorized spaces of intellectual life, as well as the ever-alluring figure of the outsider. If you're interested in this project, please subscribe to the podcast and follow my work at OutsiderTheory.com and at OutsiderTheory on Twitter. My guest today is Ashley Rinsberg, writer and journalist and author of The Gray Lady Winked, How the New York Times is Misreporting Distortions and Fabrications Radically Alter History. So this is a book that uh, has many interesting revelations in it uh, and I think is you know, in some ways, uh, a very different perspective on this uh, central institution of, you know, Western culture that um, everybody has an opinion of some sort about the New York Times. And, you know, what interests me about it is I'd say roughly I, prior to reading it, was sort of aware of two broad um, lines of critique of the New York Times, the first being the obvious sort of conservative one that, you know, the New York Times is just kind of genteel liberal propaganda and, you know, tries to disguise its obvious liberal biases under um, a guise of neutrality and objectivity. And then the other one that I was familiar with, and at least at certain points when I was more of a leftist was sort of influenced by was largely focused on the New York Times as a kind of, um, you know, pro-imperialist um, publication, right? And that, you know, if you think of sort of Noam Chomsky and the the sort of media criticism that comes out of his his line of thinking, so those are sort of the the two main strains of of criticism of the New York Times. And I think this book is actually offering something that differs from both of those, um, although it also continues. With, with certain of the, the insights that come out of those two lines of criticism. So perhaps you could just sort of talk about, you know, why this is offering a, a somewhat different um, line of critique than perhaps the more familiar ones. I think the reason, if that is the case, and, and I hope it is, is because I, I didn't really come from either of those camps when I wrote the book, um, and I still don't. I don't, you know, I... I come from a sort of politically muddled place personally, which is, you know, I've, I have real liberal sympathies, classically liberal sympathies. Um, but in some ways I feel like some of the, the liberal, the liberality of the liberalness has gone too far and has run amok. It has not been accompanied by any kind of concomitant responsibilities and obligations to a society and to, to a tradition. Um, so I think the book came from just a place of wanting to understand what is at work with the times. Like when, you know, I, I was a times reader, still, I still am a times reader, actually, in a way I'm a subscriber. Um, but I wanted to understand what's there, what's really going on. And it started with, you know, one episode and just looking into the one thing, which was the very first chapter in the book about World War II and uh, why the New York Times on the eve of World War II printed there in the lead story of the day that the war broke out that that German that Poland had invaded Germany and that just kind of you know set this all off to think how could they have published a story like that at all in 1939 not 1929 this is a decade of nazism already in the world and everybody knew it and everybody knew what nazi propaganda was 
and wanting to understand how that how that could possibly have been the case that that the New York Times of all newspapers would have printed a story like that and referring to Nazi sources as semi-official German news agencies. Um, and then it just got worse and worse the more I looked into it. So I wanted to understand more about the times. I also understood from where I am and where I was then, which is in Israel, where you see a, a discrepancy between life on the ground and life as it is in the newspaper. In the newspaper, it's just endless conflict and um, just acrimony, just pure hatred. And uh, also from where I stood, it looked, you know, Israel just seemed like this horrible place for anyone who was not a certain, not even a Jewish Israeli, but a certain kind of Jewish Israeli. And it's like, when you're here, you're like, you just look around, you know, it's not the case. I, I work in a, I work out of a small community college here. I don't work for the college. There's a shared workspace there. And at least a plurality of the students there are Israeli Arabs. And it's a very comfortable environment. And it's a very relaxed environment. It's very pretty, very nice. And people are just who they are, where they are. And if, when you read the New York Times, you're like, this just cannot be, but it is. So I wanted to understand the difference between the edited, edited reality of the news media and the real reality that we live in our lives and to know why there is a gap. Yeah, I had some similar experiences. Um, I spent a couple of years of my upbringing in Africa and then also spent a good part of my twenties in Latin America and mm. similarly found, you know, a, a, a sort of interesting divergence from, you know, the realities that I experienced on the ground and just the way the world was perceived from those places um, mm -hmm. and the kind of, um, you know, the reality as it was constructed and sort of manufactured by yeah. um, a paper like the times. And so, yeah, I mean, for me too, there was, there was a kind of, um, you know, my, my, I, I also, you know, I grew up reading the New York times, my parents, uh, you know, got it, the paper edition every day. Um, so it was, you know, pretty central to my sort of formation, but at the same time, it, um, that, that was sort of where I started to see the, the gaps as well and, the, and started to have questions. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that's, uh, that's, you know, or really, and, and also, I mean, I, I'm less good about, I don't know. I'm, I've, my whole like media consumption has, has shifted basically drastically towards just like, consuming a lot of things via Twitter and things like that. But, yeah. um, you know, for a long time, I would just kind of read, I would try to read the New York times alongside, you know, newspapers from, from mm -hmm. other countries and just, um, see what divergences there were in that. So, so anyway, I mean, I really, idea. yeah. So, I mean, I really, um, you know, found the book, uh, very helpful at kind of crystallizing some of my own, um, experiences of, of sort of, um, disillusionment with <laughs> with that paper and um the sort of prestige that it has and i mean another yeah. thing that um that i think is kind of interesting about this book is that you know i think at least from a certain maybe i mean you said before sort of you met, you know alluded to sort of classical liberalism I, I suppose sort of centrist or i don't know this kind of intellectual dark web notion like from that sort of perspective, I think there's often this idea in recent years that the New York Times has just kind of, um, you know, very recently undergone right. this sort of transformation where it's been taken over by these 
highly right. ideological young staffers and it's sort of commitment yeah. to that. I mean, often in this account, there's this idea that, you know, it, it was this bastion of sort of truth and objectivity, which only recently has been compromised by these ideological right. um, um, sort of passions that have overtaken yeah. particularly younger staffers who have joined. And, you know, I think another useful thing about this book is it really, um, it, I, I think it, it would force us to conclude that that's quite a short-sighted critique yeah. because there are ways that as, as I think you show and argue, this is, you know, the, the current sort of crises that are highly visible at the New York times are not, not as discontinuous with its history as we might like to imagine. Yeah, completely. Um, you definitely put your finger on it. Um, I saw an interview, Barry Weiss, who was the is the former New York Times opinion writer who is very high profile and left in a very high profile way. And in a conversation with Ben Shapiro saying that the New York Times has just been like somehow the management has been bullied by the newsroom into taking these crazy woke positions. And they're just like cowering. The owners are just like cowering in a corner and saying, okay, we'll do whatever you want, woke people. Where that I think is really off the mark. I think it's it's very much the other way around. I think with the Times it being owned and controlled by a dynasty, a patriarchy that really has handed down power from male heir to male heir for 120 years, that they are firmly in control of what happens at that paper. And a great example of that is in the rec in recent weeks, um, the New York Times Guild has been trying to stage some negotiations um, on behalf of their staff and their employees. And the Times has not even been willing to meet with the Guild and, and the uh, staffers that are ne demanding negotiations. I mean, this is like one of their biggest issues of the editorial page of the newspaper, which is that workers should be should be empowered to demand better conditions and better terms from their employers and at least to have a voice. And they're not even giving the staffers the voice that they're that they're really preaching should be given to staff members and other companies and organizations around the world. So when it comes to things that are really in their interest, they have no problem pushing back in a very cold manner. I mean, the like the staffers in the guild are outraged by the behavior uh, that the that management is treating them with. But when we see the woke stuff. It is, it is not something that I think this, the management or the owning families opposed to whatsoever. I think for them, it works financially. And that's what people are missing is that the 1619 project, which is, you know, woke ideology par excellence is actually a centerpiece of the New York Times' marketing mix um, as it has been since it was launched and it will be for the next few years going forward. They look at it as one of the most important pieces of marketing that and branding that the Times has done. And when you think about it, I would say, and I'm speaking as someone who's worked in marketing for more than a decade, it has got to be one of the most effective branding initiatives in recent memory period, like not within journalism or media, it's it's incredibly powerful in that regard. So the woke stuff is not something that the Times management has just caved to. It's that they're pursuing the same pattern that they've pursued for 120 years, which is put their financial interests and their and power interests before anything else. 
And that's what connects every episode in The Great Lady Winked. When I zoomed out and I've, I had to ask myself the question, how are these things all connected? How are they? How is it connected that they were sort of um, providing cover fire for the Nazis where just a few years earlier, they were doing the same for the Soviets and then did the same for, for Fidel Castro and blah, 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 on and on and on, right up until 2019 with the 1619 Project. Um, and that's the answer is that it, it always comes back to the financial interests, the, the interest of power. Um, and sometimes there is an ideological like twist to it as well, which, you know, I think it's not, they wouldn't do the same thing if the 1619 project had been a project advocating obviously for the, like the, you know, reconstituting or res- rehabilitating Confederate, uh, uh, per- figures, you know, historical figures. I, obviously, they weren't going to be doing that. So there is an ideological element to it, but it's not the primary motivator. Yeah, and I mean, I think you know, there's there's also kind of just an interesting. So on one hand, uh, you know, as as you were just pointing out, one thing the book reveals is these persistent kind of you know ideological contradictions, um, which again is something I remember becoming cognizant of earlier in life, um, just realizing that, you know, for example, the way they were covering domestic issues in terms of how it seemed to be, you know, politically biased in some sense, often seemed quite different from how they were covering, you know, issues in certain regions of the world. Um, but you know, what, what you show again and again is that there are these, um, you know, these ideological inconsistencies that seem, um, pervasive and, and recurrent throughout the history of the, paper but but then there's also a kind of odd contradiction that has to do with the sort of institutional and organizational structure of the paper itself which is as you said before is structured and and you know the sort of reactionary um blogger Curtis Yarvin loves to point this out right that's it's a that the New York Times is a hereditary monarchy right it's it's so mm-hmm. it's it, you know the bastion of of sort of um liberalism which presents itself as this kind of um you know, newspaper and the public interest, you know, if you look at its actual institutional structure, it's fundamentally, you know, anti-democratic, right? It's, it's, it's a sort of, um, you know, it's, it's structured along the most reactionary lines possible, right? Which is that it's, as you said, a series of male heirs. And so, and and also financially, it's the same way with their stock structure, which their public company, they have two tier, two tier stock structure, which is not something that can, that goes without saying uh, is something that public companies really do. You do it because you're motivated to do it for a certain reason in this case to maintain that control. So the only the, the family has uh, a stock B, um, tier B stru- uh, stocks, which are voting shares. And they're the only people who have access to that. So you can't even really buy that access at the times. Yeah, right. And so, you know, what's, um, what's interesting here is that, you know, and as you show kind of going back to like the era of the Civil War, you know, the Times was able to assert itself as a kind of moral force for certain, um, you know, for certain uh, sort of liberal in the broad sense ideals. Right. Yeah. Um, and that was, you know, from very early on what, what sort of distinguished it as a, you know, as a brand in some sense. And yet, you know, at, at odds with that is the way that it's 
its sort of ostensible commitments to the public interest are in tension with its actual institutional structure. Yeah, I think that, you know, I think it's the nature of, uh, of dynasty. I think where the founder of a dynasty might have good intentions or maybe not, but they're, they're at least almost, you know, generally they tend to be, the intentions of the dynasty founders tend to be about more than the individual self. Like there's something more than that. Whereas the dynasty itself really becomes committed to maintaining the, the power and wealth of the dynasty. And when that becomes the overriding force. And especially when I imagine within a family like that, where, where they are, they all share in the power and the wealth. And there's an internal politics as well within the family that they're struggling for, for whatever they're struggling for more or less of this, um, that in itself distracts from what should be the, the real mission, which is telling the truth, gathering the facts, presenting as an, as accurate and authentic a, picture of reality as you can but um you know again we this is what we see over and over with with the times where going back to that first example of mine world war ii and you know what i discovered in the gray lady wink through the research is that their berlin bureau chief was a nazi collaborator who was given a lot of favors by the nazis because he was doing so many favors for them and this is the new york times this is a jewish owned newspaper at that time and you think to yourself, how could they allow that to go on when they, they were informed about it? And when they were informed by a whistleblower, they threatened the whistleblower with a libel suit. And the reason was because of money. They, they wanted to be, number one, they wanted to keep that, what a later editor of the paper would call competitive metabolism, very high. They wanted to make sure that they got the best scoops in, you know, the most important uh, Berlin uh, bureau in the world, which was Berlin at that time. And they were very willing to make the sacrifice. It, it really didn't take much. I mean, it, it, at least from the outside, maybe there was a lot of hand wringing behind the scenes. But you know, again and again, this is what we saw. And it's the same thing when we look back at Walter Duranty, who's the most infamous, I would say, of all American journalists still today. And we asked the question. Well, I asked the question. Nobody else. I had, I had never seen any, anybody else ask the question about Walter Duranty, which is why. Why would a journalist turn down the scoop of a lifetime, which is the Soviet, um, the Soviet Union or, or Stalin precipitating this famine, which is a, really it was a genocide. It was a, an attempt to consolidate power in his early rule. And why would a journalist cover it up? It doesn't make sense. We all know, yes, okay, it's taken as a given. He did it. He covered it up. And he was a really bad guy, very naughty. But that's not what journalists do. They don't miss it. They don't give up on stories of that nature. They go after them. And what I found was that he gave up that story because he was instructed to by the New York Times. He was instructed to do it because it was within their business interests as a member of this sort of, um, sort of this this consortium of very big American business at the time, which wanted access to that market, the Soviet Union, there, there was no longer between the US and, and, so, and the Soviet regime, there weren't trade relations. There, the US hadn't recognized the Soviets as the legitimate government of Russia since the coup. And in order to restore full trade relations, the US government would have to recognize the Soviets as the government of Russia. 
And in order to have that happen, you couldn't have the American public believe that that same regime had just murdered 5 million of its own people for no reason. So the Times did the dirty work. They had Walter Durante, who was a brilliant reporter. He was not by no means slovenly, which is how the later publisher of the New York Times would call him in 2003 when this became an issue again. The Ukrainian-American community was sort of making a lot of noise about the fact that the, Durante was given a Pulitzer Prize for his so-called journalism, and the Times had never given it back. They had kept it. It's still considered one of the New York Times. It's like if you count up all the New York Times Pulitzers, that's one of them. And when a historian hired by the Times was asked to assess the situation, give the recommendation as to what to do about this prize, the historian obviously said, give it back. And the New York Times said, no. And again, you have to think to yourself, why? Why would they not allow this reckoning to go on? This, why would they not hold themselves to account? And I think the reason is because the, the accounting on, on that side of the balance sheet, on the um, liabilities side of the moral balance sheet is just too great. And it would force them to look at too many other things, which is including the fact that two of the reporters from the Berlin Bureau who were working underneath their Nazi collaborating bureau chief also won Pulitzer's for their reporting, including one who called the Nazi Olympics of 1936 the greatest, greatest sporting event of all time. So I think that's, again, where we're seeing this, this confluence of wealth and power and how it leads this institution astray time and again. And it's structural. That's the problem with it. It's a, there is right now, there's no way to unlock it because they they have locked down that power, namely through the that um, two-tier stock structure I was just talking about. Without that there, you could just, you know, you could have a hostile takeover, you could have many ways, or you could dilute them somehow, sell them, they, they sell out. I mean, that, that would be the only way for them to give up that position, but there is no sign that they're ever going to do that. So right up until today and for the foreseeable future, the most powerful newsmaking organization in the world, pound for pound, will continue to be owned by a single family or controlled at least. Are you a fan of uh, succession? Yeah, I love, I love succession. Yeah. And, and they, they, there is actually a moment in succession in which they discuss a two tier stock structure and they're like, Whoa, I don't know if we want to go even for that insane, the Roy family who are just like pathologically insane and power hungry and everything. That's like kind of like a red line for them. And this is something the times has lived with for decades already that they've gone full, full uh, dive full into that headlong into that, um, into that manner of operating this news organization, which is in my, in my view, it is inherently corrupt. I mean, it's legal. It's, you know, some if someone who deals with like financial ethics would say it's technically ethical, but to me, there is a natural tendency towards corruption when that's how you think about running a news organization. Another um, period that you go into quite a bit, which has interesting echoes of this earlier time, you know, when when you have them sort of carrying water for you know, both the Nazis and the Soviets within a few years of each other is, but, yeah. but focused more on, on um, U.S. policy is, you know, obviously like the Judith Miller WMD story is pretty well known. And then yeah. more or less around the same time, you have the Jason Blair scandal. Um, mm -hmm. And then you also have these stories, which I think are less well known, which you recount in detail, which have to do with 
um, these <clears throat> these sort of odd attempts to I mean I suppose they they probably didn't seem odd at the time but but the way you present them you know <laughs> makes makes it clear how strange they were to kind of um, you know reveal the supposed domestic collateral of the war right and that mm-hmm. you know on yeah. one hand you had this these kind of sensationalistic stories supposedly about um, you know, soldiers, uh, veterans returning from the war and committing various crimes and acts of violence. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, what's what's interesting is obviously I think, you know, and this kind of goes back to that, um, that sense that, you know, it's not quite as ideologically neat or unified as, as it might seem because, you know, it's true that you did have the Judith Miller scandal and you, you did have the Times doing a good deal to um, essentially provide the basis for the the Iraq war um, after 9-11. But at the same time, you had these other kinds of narratives that that it was circulating, which were equally dubious, perhaps um, perhaps not quite as as dramatic in their their broader impact. But, um, you know, it's interesting that those I I think are less well known. Um, And even I think the Jason Blair scandal, I don't think people remember the details of it all that much um like they remember that there was this guy who was a star supposedly a star reporter who was fabricating (laughs) stories but i don't think they remember the details of what those stories were so i mean i think this is another place where you know and and i mean speaking for myself you know i i pretty much remember very well the the judith miller material and just you know perceiving myself at the time the, the times as as complicit in the kind of um, run up to war. But then, you know, these other stories make that whole kind of ideological panorama a little bit more complex. So Mm -hmm. I don't know, could you maybe talk about that? Because I think it's, it's one of the more interesting um, parts of the book that has to do with recent history that, that is somewhat forgotten now. Yeah. I mean, we all know Judy Miller, and and others it wasn't just her but she she definitely was at the center of it all where she she was really trumpeting this notion uh that there were weapons of mass destruction in iraq and there was a series of reports that culminated in this one piece that she did in which she met supposedly met a source who was telling her where um if it was I forget what exactly was supposed to be buried in the desert there, but something having to do with WMDs. And he was like standing a hundred feet away from her. She was not allowed to actually speak to him or even approach him, but he just pointed at the, at the ground and she was like, Oh, okay. Got it. Scoop. You know? So you think what, again, why the New York times is supposed to be this great bastion of journalism that upholds these standards and has all these mechanisms, mechanisms and processes um, how could they allow such a thing to happen? Because it's not just Judy Miller, of course. Like they, it would have to pass. That story would have to pass through so many layers and so many hands to get onto the front page of the New York Times, and just like all the other stories that she reported along those lines. So, part of the explanation, a big part in this case, is that again, the Times was really looking to be number one on this story. They were wanting to. And when I mentioned the term competitive metabolism, this was the editor who spoke those words. His name was Howell Raines. 
He had just ascended to the throne of um, being executive editor, the top editor at the New York Times. And he really wanted to make sure that they would be number one in the reporting. And a key part of that was that they would be number one on a national level. They were, they were really starting to change the focus there from being a simply a, a New York paper or a regional paper and really being a national paper. Because this was in obviously the early 2000s, the writing was on the wall about, about where things were going with the internet and what that was going to be doing to news. And they, they started to understand very early and to their credit that the, this was really going to be a winner takes all scenario for journalism in America, that you would have very small number of national newspapers that would be able to survive in the new media landscape. They wanted to be one of them, which meant having national national coverage and, you know, part and parcel to that, they were buying up um, TV networks and radio and all, all sorts of things as a part of this effort. So Howell Reigns comes along and thinking, we need to be number one and we need to be national, which means we can't be seen as a bunch of squishy New York leftists because that is not going to work for this uh, national strategy. Like America, they, they, you know, it's, there is a whole other country between the coasts and they wanted to make sure that those people would also be New York times readers. And so they were going to say, we weren't going to be reflexively anti-Bush and they swung the pendulum too far the other way. And there was just too much incentive for that. The the primary incentive being get those big scoops before the Washington post does before the Washington post becomes the number one national newspaper in this reconceived media landscape. And um, that's part of what resulted from this part of what's what, what removed all the safety mechanisms at the times and let Judy Miller publish these really dubious stories that were being sourced by who knows whom. Um, and some people, we do know who they were. They're, they're people that like Ahmed Chalabi, who was just this corrupt Iraqi uh, power player politician who was feeding them false information and they were just gobbling it up. But again, it kept them number one for a little time until it all blew up in their faces when we discovered there were not weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. It was, you know, at best, the United States government was just in completely incompetent on the subject. At worst, they were there was a significant element of malfeasance. But the New York Times, along with the rest of the media, it should be noted, went along with this story. And what happened in its aftermath when it did blow up is Jason Blair, because Jason Blair was, as you mentioned, this young on the rise African-American reporter, this kind of supposed wonder kind. And, um, you know, everyone was sort of waiting for him to do great, great things. And what we forget was that Jason Blair, he, there, he did some reporting about the, the DC snipers, DC sniper at his, it was known at the time. There were actually two of them. And some of that was false reporting. But most of his reporting that he got caught out on was reporting for, um, something, uh, this series, I forget the exact name of the series that he did, but it was a series about soldiers returning from Iraq, having been completely broken physically, spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, you name it. They, these were just broken human beings. The war was one week old, literally, when he started writing the series. And he's, all, I mean, if you were to create a map of how Jason Blair supposedly was traveling from place to place, town to town, state to state, he would literally have to be using some sort of time work machine to actually do this physically, logistically. It was impossible. 
not only that, but the editors at the Times were had already been made of problems with Jason Blair's reporting. And prior to his arrival at the New York Times, when he was at a student newspaper, he had similar issues at the paper. There were red flags all over this. But he's his not only was his reporting allowed to proceed through all the gatekeepers at the Times, the editorial gatekeepers, making sure that the sourcing was good, that the stories made, made sense, that they worked, et cetera. But he was getting front page stories. Uh, again and again and again and again. And again, that was because this was a reaction to them having really um, blown the whole Iraq WMD story and saying, all right, we need to recalibrate. Let's go the other way. And that was Jason Blair saying this war is an unmitigated disaster and we're ruining the best of America's youth. Um, they're coming home broken and bruised. And when this actually blew up and, if, and people realized that Jason Blair had been fabricating a lot of this stuff and they went back and interviewed the people he had supposedly interviewed, these people were like, no, I'm actually, I'm okay. Yeah. Like I'm not, I, I have pain or I, have, I lost uh, part of a limb, but more or less I'm fine. And, you know, that's where you see the narrative that they were trying to see was really motivated by this notion that this war was, was destroying America. I mean, that's really what they, and subsequent to that, they did another series, which was very similar. Um, I believe it was called War Torn. And the series that they did subsequent to Blair series was claiming that these soldiers were coming back, not just broken, um, not just with their own lives destroyed, but destroying the lives of others through acts of violence, that they were, these soldiers were coming back and murdering people at a disproportionate rate than the rest of the population. And when people started looking into this and look at the statistics. And I actually was able to look at the statistics as well, simply by Googling it through the department of defense. It's all publicly available. And you realize when you do the math that the, these soldiers coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan were committing violent crime at a lower rate than the general population. And this was something they were called out for, but they persisted in, in seeding this narrative because it was so important to them to, to reinforce this notion. And really it's an agenda. I mean, if you want to put it in any way, it's an agenda. And I think it was, again, recalibrating the brand. They had made this horrendous error with WMDs, which made them look like Bush and Cheney supporting right-wing lunatics. And then they wanted to really do the opposite, saying, we are the most vociferous critics of these wars. And we're going to do that by showing just how damaging the wars really are to not only the soldiers who are fighting them, but to American citizens back home. And what we see was that the, they created two completely false narratives that had no basis in reality. And again, that, that to me was this kind of thing that's just so shocking to know that they, they would do this because it's so, it's like on its face, flat out wrong. It's not one of these like gray area type things. It's just flat out factually incorrect by their own definition of what correctness is, by their own sourcing, by their own measured metrics. So that's kind of what I learned through the, and the, you know, there's a whole lot of other stuff that was going on there, including um, Valerie Plame, who was a covert CIA operative um, and how, you know, Judy Miller was sort of, was accused of um, protect, of hiding sources from the U S government. She was jailed and the New York times made this big issue out of like protecting her, her right to protect her sources. And they hired her a bunch of fancy lawyers. And then when she got out of prison, they fired her. So it, it was a lot of hypocrisy in a very small amount of time.
Yeah, this sort of reminded me of something um, more recent. And, you know, I think because of the, I, I assume the timeline on which you did the research for the book and so on, but, you know, you didn't really get into the, um, the sort of COVID pandemic coverage uh, because, you know, mm -hmm. I think you're probably finished with the book by then, but, um, yeah. but you know, it, it does, I, I would argue kind of reveal some similar patterns. Um, something that, so this is like, a, t a slight tangent, but I um just for a long story, but um I happened to be in China in January 2020. Um oh, wow. so I actually like saw the whole initial unfolding of of like the, the pandemic there and the initial lockdown that, that occurred in China and all that. So and then I came back to the US and um you know the the basically for two months, I mean and you know as somebody who I think I'm like probably reading the times less now than I was then, but you know, was, was checking in on the times. I mean, really the, the, the entire thrust of coverage was, you know, this, I mean, on one hand there was kind of a, a sort of panic tone about it, but if you looked at all of the editorializing and so on, the entire thrust of it was, don't worry, it's not a big deal. The panic is worse than the disease. Um, yep. And there was kind of this idea that, you know, the real danger here was that somehow Trump would um, use this as a as a pretext for some kind of xenophobic policies or something like that, right? And so you can go right. back and still find all these articles by various um, Times reporters and columnists that are sort of, um, I mean, I think there was like literally an article where the headline was, you know, the the coat um you know the covid panic is worse than the virus or something like that um <laughs> and so you know it it's it was it was really the consistent line for like two months right and i found this mm -hmm. interesting just because i had actually been in china and sort of seen how that country responded to it initially um you know and this is regardless of whether their response was ultimately the right one Anyway, but but it was just such a bizarre, you know, again, it was this experience that I've had before of, of total disjunction, right, where um, the reality as they were covering it was completely different if, if you looked at it from a from yeah. another country's perspective. And then you really did have another of these kind of recalibrations or sort of complete. 180s where, um, you know, they really became major, I mean, I would say propagandists on behalf of this kind of extreme um, exaggerated panic about this, mm -hmm. um, about this virus that, you know, is, is definitely real and dangerous, but um, you know, that, that was kind of um, for various, I would argue various political reasons, you know, turned into the, um, to a, a much greater crisis than it possibly had to be. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, it was, I, I, I think, again, there was this, you know, th there was, on, on one hand, like, ideologically, there was no consistent line, right? There, there was this kind of wild flailing around in response to this sort of emergent phenomenon. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, there were certain... I think incentives that were being responded to that, that I would say mm -hmm. are, are consistent with, with what you show was going on in other uh, moments. So yeah. I don't know if you have thoughts about, I mean, this is, you know, kind of my idiosyncratic <clears throat> take on all of this, but I, I don't know if you have thoughts about how kind of 2020 unfolded in relation to all of these. 
patterns? Well, the one thing, one thing that I, I have done some research on and done some reporting about is the lab leak theory, which, you know, is the, obviously the theory that the virus might've been leaked accidentally from a scientific lab in Wuhan, where there is a lab that studies coronaviruses as John Stewart. So, so pointedly pointed out and, and over the summer, uh, which had become this like idea that was completely anathema to, to the media. Like, how could you even say such a ridiculous thing that a, a lab in Wuhan where the virus began, the pandemic started that studied coronaviruses that has a history of leaking viruses <laughs> might've leaked this one too. It was like considered the most insane idea by the media. And the New York times had been very, very early in developing that narrative that lab leak was non-scientific was a conspiracy theory, a fringe theory, a Republican fringe theory at that, and that it was racist. That was something that they had developed. Um, and it was one of those that one of the storylines and narratives that that was, it still is very consistent at the times. They pushed that for, I would say, at least a year and a half. And they did it very doggedly. It, it was not one of these things where they kind of like did a story or two. It's like, maybe maybe this is a racist idea or maybe it's, no, it was, this is conspiracy theory and we're going to print that in dozens of articles, dozens of mentions, podcasts, interviews, op-eds, tweets, uh, whatever, whatever format they have available to them. That was now the party line. Um, and again, where you think about what is the, incentive why and to me i think the new york times and the media's relationship with china can't be ignored the new york times has been trying to break into the chinese market since 2011 where they launched a chinese edition of the newspaper it's the only edition of their newspaper that is in a foreign language and dedicated to another country so you know there is like spanish language which covers many different countries but the chinese language paper is really for china and of course, that makes sense. Again, they are looking at a world in which there's really only going to be one serious player in news that is not a technology company, that is a traditional media company. And, and that back to succession, there's actually a moment in succession where um, Logan Roy is saying, there's only going to be one in the new media landscape. We're going to be the one. That's the vision. That is the vision. And that vision makes sense. When you think, okay, we we also have this other market of 1.4 billion people, if we can get access to it, if we're the ones allowed. So when they launched this edition of the Chinese newspaper, the New York Times, they a few months after that did this story that was very damaging to um, I, I forget who exactly it was. It was like I think it was the premier at the time when when. Well, um, anyways, it was looking at his, the, the, his corruption, like his family's wealth that came from the party. And within days, access from the Chinese public to the New York Times, the Chinese edition was cut off. And what we understand from that is that the CCP fully knows, is fully aware that they have a lever with the New York Times to say, if you piss us off, we will shut you down just as we already did. And if you continue to piss us off, you will never get access to this market. And I think that's something the New York Times is aware of on some level. I don't necessarily think it's that, you know, mid-level reporters in the newsroom are thinking about the CCP, but I think there are people at the New York Times company 
which is again, a $10 billion company that has $2 billion of revenue and that is looking to monopolize the news industry that understands the power of the CCP. So I think where we think, you know, why would they care one way or the other, whether it was lab leak that explains the pandemic, whether it was a bat, I mean, it, it seems completely arbitrary if this insane authoritarian regime that has bad safety practices in its bio labs had leaked it by mistake, or if this very unlikely event that somehow a human came in contact with a bat in, again, still unexplained circumstances, we still today don't know, despite the fact that this was declared scientific fact that it was zoonotic transfer, that it was transferred from, a, from most likely a bat to a human. We have no idea what it actually was. There is no proof to say it was a bat or if it was a pangolin or if it was anything else. And no one can tell you where and when it happened. So you look and say, there's two competing theories. You could assess the, the credibility of each, but there's definitely no reason to say this one's a conspiracy theory and this one's not. So you have to ask why, what's the incentive? And I think the, the biggest incentive there is, again, the most powerful, arguably most powerful single corporate entity being the CCP in the world. And, um, you know, I think that's, that's the through line as to the, the hysteria and um, Trumpian politics being involved in that. I absolutely think that's the case. I mean, we, we see during Trump's presidency, we saw news all the time of Trump related super spreader events, rallies, um, you know, Trump events when, when, um, What's her name? Amy uh, Barrett, right? The Supreme Court Justice when she was when she was tapped to be the next Supreme Court Justice, and that became the next super spreader event. And there's so many super spreader events in the Trump presidency, and we see today we have no Biden administration super spreader events. We also didn't have a Black Lives Matter super spreader event. So I think there there is definitely that ideological division, the political division in the reporting on the pandemic. It's obvious. And I think that's what really gets people. That's what kind of galls people is that it's so naked. It's that they don't try to spread it around, kind of spread the blame around or spread the credit around enough to make it look as if they are attempting neutrality. They, they're definitely not doing that. And that's where we had this flap recently in the US um, over Let's Go Brandon, the, this, this sort of chant that's become a Republican meme, um, where people are saying, oh, it's a, it's a code for an anti-Biden expletive, that being fuck Joe Biden. And when I hear Let's Go Brandon, it's like, of course, some people are using it in that way. But I think there's another narrative there, which is that people are saying Let's Go Brandon is a chant which is pointing out media complicity in advancing a certain political agenda um, at the expense of reality, because Let's Go Brandon emerged when an NBC reporter at a NASCAR event was was interviewing a driver who just won the race named Brandon, and the crowd is chanting very clearly, fuck Joe Biden. And the reporter says, oh, I think they're saying let's go Brandon. So, she, you know, she's whether or not she meant to do that, who knows? But what it appears to be is another reporter from a major American news organization covering up for the political party that they favor and giving it this whole other spin that is um, completely not connected to the reality that's plain, plainly evident to everybody else involved. And I think that these are the kinds of things that are flowing around the media today. And I think this is why public trust 
um, of the media among Americans is at historic lows. Yeah, and I mean, I think, you know, the the whole sort of um, fake news, misinformation, et cetera, panic of the past five years is interesting in this light because, um, I mean, and, and, you know, it's also worth getting into sort of the, the symbiosis with Trump, right, that was clearly central to the, the Times business model for, you know, the yep. past past four or five years um, where, you know, he, he, and I mean, not just the times, right? Like, I think it was, you know, whichever studio boss I can remember for one of the TV stations said, yeah, I mean, he's great. You know, there's no, no denying he's great for business. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So it was MSNBC or something. Right. But um, so, you know, it was, it was very clear that, um, you know, ironically the, I mean, the, you know, the whole fake news meme is is just fascinating in terms of how it emerged and and morphed and kind of got turned around. Um, but, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, basically what you know, what happened was on one hand, we had this idea of a sort of, um, you know, a sort of disaggregation of the the information regime and sort of information channels that was brought about mm-hmm. by the Internet, which you know, raised, um, and, and which, you know, for a while, and this is something I've written about was seen quite positively because it was seen as, uh, I mean, and if you look at times coverage as well as other coverage 10 years ago of the Arab spring, for example, it was often brought up as like, you know, this is the internet, you know, liberating people to, um, you know, kind of circumvent the official narratives and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, get to the truth. And then, you know, sort of five, six years later, that's turned on its head because basically it becomes the means by which, you know, Trump and these other sort of demagogues are um, are sort of tricking people into um, electing, uh, you know, authoritarian, dangerous regimes, right? So um, so we have this this tension between the New York Times, you know, which we could take as a stand-in for the kind of legacy media in general, and then these kinds of um, decentralized, disaggregated sort of information channels of the internet, which, right. you know, then allows for a kind of, um, I mean, the, the panic around fake news allows for, you know, these kind of institutions like the New York Times and the Washington Post to present themselves as the kind of bastions of, of reliable, you know, um, truthful, objective information um, as against the kind of churning chaos of the internet. But of course, ironically, that is itself a completely propagandistic (laughs) self-conception, right? That is, um, that is actually allowing them to, you know, um, become increasingly naked in their sort of partisanship and bias, right? So, so ironically, like it it becomes a way of of put you know putting a veneer on you know what what's actually a kind of um, increasing um, sort of mask off uh, <clears throat> politicization, um, and then. You know, on the other hand, then, of course, you have Trump kind of brilliantly sort of re-signifying fake news to mean the opposite of what it was originally coded to mean, 
Um, and right. so the exactly. New York Times itself yeah. is the is the um, the purveyor, the, the the chief purveyor of fake news. So, I mean, it's you know, it's such a fascinating sort of. Um, yeah, people people forget that people forget <laughs> that 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 it had that there that flip happened. And the the new narrative about the term fake news is that Trump it's a Trumpian term solely. And we forget that there there was a history prior to Trump, Trump involving the term that he co-opted to his benefit and, you know, in, in a brilliant Trumpian manner. But, you know, as you said about um, the Arab Spring, where where social media was seen as this way to circumvent institutional channels, um, I think the reason that it's become, you know, there was this this sort of well-known tweet that, that received a lot of criticism. It was a New York Times tweet saying about Clubhouse, the audio uh, social network, that Clubhouse allows people to have unfettered conversations. And people are like, whoa, what, why would a conversation ever need to be fettered in the first place? And you see from that, the New York Times was really concerned by social media and by the the ability that it gives people to engage in narratives that um, that contradict the official the official party line because they are the institutional information channel in the U.S. and that's why it bothered them why they were able to celebrate it in the Arab Spring as a way of circumventing official media in the U.S. they are the official media and it points to something which is that in a way the American news media has become very intertwined with American government, especially when the, the Democrats are uh, in power. And, um, you know, I think it probably falls the other way with other news outlets when Republicans are in power. So you have Fox news people, but in general media in the U S that once was, was sort of had a tension with government, which is why we come back to this notion of press freedoms. We're talking about freedoms from government interference. It's no longer really an operative concept because there is so much, you know, corporate synergy between government and media today on both sides of the aisle that what's at stake is no longer freedom from government interference. What's really at stake is independence from influence, government influence, corporate influence, uh, you know, in the New York Times case, family influence, dynastic influence. So that's something that I think the media has really lost sight of. Nobody's talking about that within the media. You're not going to hear Brian Stelter go off on a monologue about how the U.S. media has been unduly influenced by X, Y, or Z. He's not going to talk about it. He will talk about it in, in terms of a political influence at Fox News, but he will never look at how the U.S. media is being influenced by the CCP, by ideological interests, by lobbying groups. Um, the, and that's something that I think is something that the, the media itself really needs to have a conversation about and to be to start being honest and saying, OK, yes, there might be a problem at Fox News. We were blue in the face talking about it. Brian Stelter wrote a whole book about it, talks about it on every night as does Rachel Maddow. But let's zoom out and look at the entire US media landscape and think where are the undue influences coming from and what are their effects? 
why rather than defend the media against the lab leak um, debacle, why not look into it? Why not dive deeper and say, what actually happened here? Why was the media pushing this idea that lab leak is a conspiracy theory and a fringe theory and even using sources who to prove the point, who didn't actually believe that, like Richard Ebright, who is one of the premier um, people in the epidemiological community, who was being cited by the Washington Post to prove that the lab leak was a conspiracy theory and a fringe theory, when he never believed that in the first place, not in 2020 or not before that or after that. So I think this is the time where the U.S. media has to start having that conversation because they what's at what's at stake here is no longer their ability to freely report the news. It's something much more serious, which is their ability to engage in an audience that believes anything that they say. Yeah, and I mean, you know, it's it's interesting as well that um you know, the, the whole longstanding fixation on Fox News, um, you know, where, uh, you, you know, you had something like The Daily Show, you know, sort of 10 to 20 years ago, where, you know, a great deal of what they did was was sort of point at Fox News and what they were doing now. Right. And so there is this weird, um, I don't know, there, there's this kind of carnival mirror aspect of it where, you know, one of the ways um, the, these uh, these kind of media organs on the more liberal side, you know, kind of legitimate their own, you know, biases and susceptibility to these kinds of influences you're talking about is um, by pointing at Fox News doing that. Right? So so right. They, it's, it's kind of... Um, you know, this kind of look over there gesture. But then, I mean, the other thing that I find kind of ironic and interesting about this is that, you know, my understanding is that Tucker Carlson, you know, who's now Fox's most popular host, um, actually, you know, kind of uh, explicitly learned from Jon Stewart and decided to kind of, you know, take, you know, um, you know, borrow some, um, some sort of techniques and approaches from him. And I think it's like, yeah. re- I think it's pretty open about that. Um, and, yeah, and, and that, you know, that, but that at the same time, I think if you look at, you know, Maddow and um, particularly and sort of MSNBC under the Trump era, I mean, there was, you know, I kind of went the other way. I mean, in, in some ways they were really um, at, at, at that point, I mean, and I think their, their ratings have really tumbled since then, but, the, but they were sort of, um, you know, following the Fox News model that, you know, that they were being for Trump what Fox News had been for Obama, pretty much. Um, yeah, that, that I think Maddow right. isn't necessarily all that reticent about acknowledging that, right? So um, no. so there is this odd, I mean, and I guess we're, we're straying from the Times into to, uh, cable news, but, you know, th- there is this odd way that... Um, you know, the, uh, there's this need to, I mean, something I'm just generally interested in is, is kind of um, the way that rivalries and conflicts conceal kind of imitation and similarity. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think, and, and, you know, if, if you want to conceive of these kind of symbioses between, um, you know, whether it's kind of Trump and the New York times or, you know, mm-hmm. Fox News and this kind of whole complex of liberal outlets, which function 
you know, centrally to kind of points at Fox News and its malfeasance as as their own sort of raison d'etre. Like there's kind of just a, a very odd way that our our sort of news ecosystem seems to always work in this way. Yeah, it's, um, you know, it, it's the the effect that having too many interests corporate uh, con- concentrated in too few places has on anything, because this is something, this is a conversation America has been having about uh, many different industries, including big pharma, more recently with big ag, big chemicals, um, big tobacco, big finance. We've never had it with regard to big media, not in a real way. You know, it's all, the whole big media conversation has all been narrowed by the media itself to Fox, which is why Brian Stelter would write a book about Fox and nobody else. And no one's really thinking, wait a second, let's look at how power is distributed in the media and understand that it's pretty much four companies who own a majority of the American media. You know, it's it's Viacom, um, it's Disney, it's uh, Comcast, and, you know, maybe there are a couple others. And they wield disproportionate power. And they also have huge competing interests and conflicting interests within those companies. I mean, they they are trying to placate shareholders. They are that pursuing that that inexorable uh, need for growth in order to continue to keep a share price increasing, and a whole matrix of other kinds of interests that are involved that don't get spoken about because no one's actually looking at it. Because the people who would be looking at it are the media. Who are owned by the the corporations that are in question. So that that is the problem when we have someone like John Oliver who's you know tearing his hair out about insurance companies, but never stopping to look at the company that owns him or his show or the company that owns the company that owns the company that owns his show is probably a better description. So that's exactly the point, and and it definitely is. Um, it, it's on both sides of the aisle. It's, you know, absolutely on Fox, we see it and the, the rest of the right. And just as you mentioned with regard to um, Tucker and John Stewart, you know, it's Stewart was absolutely a part of the machine. And I think it's one of these other small things that people forget, which is that, you know, Stewart had went on Tucker's show. I think what, what the show was called, was it Crossfire? It was him and um, whoever it was with him on the show. And ridiculed, this was, Tucker was very young at the time. He was still in his bow tie wearing days, ridiculed Tucker Carlson for wearing a bow tie. And, you know, you just see Tucker come back with John Stewart's own tactics in that news desk. And um, it's the ultimate revenge. The problem with that kind of revenge and the, and the kind of revenge that Stewart was taking out on Tucker for, for doing what Tucker was doing at the time is that it doesn't help us as the American public and the American people. And the people who actually really did need and still do need credible information. We need reliable channels that we can turn to when something is happening in our world or when we just need to go out and vote and really to understand and make an informed decision that's informed by information that has not been tainted by undue influence and interest. And that's something that, again, nobody's talking about this. We're not talking about it in Congress. We're not talking about it in the media. Um, I think it's probably something that academia is not talking about that much either. And it's because you have this kind of agglomeration of media, big business, government, and to some extent, academia as well, that that 
in some form, they're in bed with one another because the professor becomes famous, gets a show on MSNBC, gets a job in the White House, goes to work it from White, the White House to Amazon. You know, that's that's a very familiar pattern today. Like this, we're seeing exactly that pathway, which is incredibly weird that someone can start in the history department of Yale and end up at as like the head of corporate communications at Amazon or Walmart or Apple. Or, you know, if you look at like Nick Clegg, even from, from the UK, who's the head of communications at Facebook. So this is a huge problem. And, um, and we really need to have a conversation about it, which I think is the conversation that we're having and why straying from the New York Times and speaking about the rest of the media is, is really the point. The New York Times is a great entry point into this, but the bigger conversation is about media. So it seems like we're sort of at a paradoxical point um, because on one hand we have this and, you know, we could probably get into this whole sort of substack phenomenon and, you know, what that, the, that there is this kind of exit from certain, um, you know, legacy media institutions, which, you know, in some ways is a repetition of what happened with the blogosphere like 20 years ago. Um, And, you know, it, it, um, although it's it's different because it's primarily channeled through this one, you know, tech company um, Substack, right? Um, yeah. As opposed to just people, you know, cobbling together their own WordPress sites or whatever. Um, so, but but nevertheless, there is this kind of disaggregation, at least in the form of these kind of people who are prominent enough to kind of strike out on their own and detach from these institutions usually on the basis of some kind of critique of their, you know, ideological conformity. Um, But, and, and, you know, finding that, you know, some of these figures are able to actually earn more than they were able to earn um, with, um, you know, with salaried positions at, you know, staff positions at these uh, publications. So, you know, on one hand, we have this kind of disaggregation. Um, and again, you know, this is part of this kind of multiplication of information channels and, and um, this kind of decentralization that, that you know, is, is the background of the whole fake news um, meme and, um, and so on. But at the same time, we have this kind of um, this tendency towards a kind of power law distribution which I think you've brought up a number of times in terms of the, New- the Times' strategy, right? Which is basically it, it grasped 20 years ago that um, one of the effects of the internet was going to be there were just going to be a few big fish, right? Um, and so, mm-hmm. you know, that's the, that's the power law distribution where, you know, you have these, um, I mean, particularly you have these kind of more local newspapers, folding and and or getting kind of absorbed into some um into some uh you know syndication but you know basically you have a a sort of a a a greater so you have on one hand a tendency towards decentralization on the other hand a tendency towards greater centralization Mm -hmm. um and so it there's kind of an interesting push and pull um i don't know you know i think all, all the things we've been saying have have largely pointed towards the way that, that this this tendency towards centralization via this kind of um, tendency towards a, a power law distribution is is creating incentives that are 
that are not, um, you know, fostering particularly good journalism or, you know, commitment to um, mm -hmm. objectivity. But at the same time, you know, I, I think at least some would claim that this kind of um, this, you know, sort of substack renaissance is, you know, modeling a kind, you know, and I think of people like, you know, Matt Taibbi, um, you know, is, is sort of fostering a kind of, um, you know, independent journalism that is, they would argue, you know, less subject to these kinds of influences because it's essentially funded by, um, funded by readers. So, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, so obviously I think there are problems with that model, um, which we might get into, but, um, I'm just curious what you think of that. And, you know, the Substack is only one example. I think there are probably others we could talk about, but, you know, are there, um, are, are any of these kinds of decentralizing trends, um, you know, potentially hopeful in, um, in fostering, you know, types of, of journalism and commentary that are less subject to these, these sorts of influences that you've been discussing? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that just by virtue of the fact that there is there are alternative channels right now, um, Substack obviously being a big one, um, which means, you know, when you look at the business model, it's a big part of it because one good thing about the advertising model of news media was that every reader counted because every set of eyeballs counted pretty much equally. Like it, it didn't matter if it was me or you, the next guy, we, we all mattered to the advertiser, which meant we mattered to the news company. Today, with the shift from advertising to subscription as the, as the business model for most news organizations, that's not the case anymore. What that means is that only about 2% of a newspaper's total readers are actually subscribers. So 2% of their readership are paying them. And it's those 2% who will have a disproportionate influence on the kind of coverage that the newspaper does because they want to keep their customers happy, um, continue, continuing to pay for those subscriptions long to the future. So what I think Substack and other forms um, are doing is sort of restoring a model in which every reader matters or every um, subscriber matters because it's all subscription-based, basically, in, in Substack. So we each have an equal share in the kind of coverage that is being produced. And also what it, what it hap what's happening with it is that we are, we are sort of like, as you're saying, decentralizing, but also deconstructing the newspaper and the way that the album was deconstructed into a series of tracks. Like we didn't all really need a full album. We can just listen to the tracks. And that's what, what streaming has done for music, I think is what these platforms will do for news, which is that I don't really need the entire breadth of the New York Times' crazily extensive coverage of everything. I really am just interested in the stuff that Matt Taibbi or um, Barry Weiss or whoever else it might be, Andrew Sullivan is covering in their particular way. So I'll just go there. And I think that's in a way a good thing, at least for the moment, because when we look at social media, Twitter is a great example of this. Part of the problem, part of the rancor um, or why it's so toxic is that you have too many uh, different kinds of people in the same space and they, they are speaking different languages. I mean, they all might be interacting in English technically, but they are incommensurate with one another. They're not speaking in terms that mean the same thing to, to each other so or to one another. So 
that is, I think, the benefit of, of creating these small um, communities, the, the, um, the Matt Taibbi community, where we all have a shared set of assumptions about the world and shared values that, that enable a conversation to, to actually happen. I think the downside, of course, is that you don't have those layers of editors and um, those safeguards that you have within a traditional media outlet that say, wait, hold on, Matt, like, I'm not so sure about this, what you're saying here. So you have, I think, an over-concentration of the way that these the stories of the commentary are is produced because it's not being challenged by anyone within the organization. But then again, maybe it is. So maybe it's his own audience that's able to challenge him directly because he's have he's really have in this one to one relationship with them because it's on email. So I absolutely do think um, it it is a good thing. And I think it, we're going to see more and more of it. I think we're going to see it evolving. I think maybe one part of that model will be having cooperatives so that people who have, you know, five or six people with sub stacks will band together and offer one subscription that's shared among all of them. And I think that's sort of like a newsroom. Um, but I do think that you know, we, we still have to put a focus somehow on hard journalism, meaning people going out and reporting stuff, not just commenting, commentating and critiquing and opining, but actually gathering the facts. So I think that's the one blind spot of Substack where some people are able to do that on some things, but I don't really think you're going to be able to create enough Substacks with enough experienced people, enough resources for them to go out and like run a Metro beat. You know, maybe at some point you will, but maybe that again, that's also where this disaggregation of news, the, the holes that it leaves will be filled by other models, such as nonprofit journalism, where you can have a nonprofit newsroom that is dedicated to what's going on in Minneapolis, like the Metro Beat of Minneapolis. Like that is just one news organization. That's all they do. There's five, five of them. They're funded by whoever, by some foundation, and they're good at the jobs and they don't need to do all the other stuff. They don't need to do celebrity journalism and the Minneapolis Metro Beat because those two things are kind of at odds with one another. And that's something we also see at the Times where they're doing these like hardcore Metro Beats and they're doing stuff about um, poverty and wage disparities. And they're also pushing this like lifestyle journalism about people with amazing houses and great jewelry at the same time. And you're like, how can these coexist in the same spot? It feels like there is just, the tension is too great there and it, it dilutes um, or pulls the journalism apart somehow. So I'm curious if you have um, thoughts on the level of on the more regular, you know, we've kind of just been thinking about, um, you know, the way that uh, our sort of information ecosystem seems to be gravitating in certain directions and the possibilities that that's creating. Is there a more sort of top-down regulatory um, way of thinking about this set of problems we've been identifying, um, you know, whether it's the the structure of the times or just the the seeming tendency towards monopoly, which, um, you know, I think is, you know, the, the sort of, um, implication of this, this sort of power law distribution. Um, Mm -hmm. so I don't know. I mean, this, this, that isn't really your, uh, you know, you're not a, you're not a a regulator or a sort of policymaker, but I'm just curious if there's, um, if you have thoughts on that front, is there a sort of, um, is there a is there a need for a kind of regulatory approach to some of the problems we've been identifying? Yeah, I do think so. I don't, I don't 
it may not necessarily be government regulation, but I do think there is a regulatory hole in the media. And that that can be even stuff that feels mundane, like should journalists be able to delete tweets that make them look bad? I'm not, I'm not so sure that they should be able to. And I think that if Twitter awards you a verify a verification badge for as, as a journalist, um, which now you have to actually choose what you're getting a verification for, and you sometimes can choose journalism, that you should not be able to do, delete stuff because it's inconvenient for you because it, it creates a gap in uh, in this continuity of what, what you're reporting and how. And I think probably the same should be the, the case in terms of regulating uh, digital news stories, because once upon a time, the print story was the print story. You weren't going to change it. You could correct it. Today, we have see a lot of stealth editing going on in newsrooms uh, online. They'll just go back and quietly edit a piece and make it look like they didn't do the bad thing that they did. And I'm not so sure that that's something that should be going on either. Who's going to regulate that? I think that's a good question. I think that's the question we need to answer. That's the hard question because you don't want to say government's making laws about what journalism can and can't do because once you give government that power, it's just off to the races. But I do think that there is a, you know, one thing I I, I like to think about is when we look at very other, you know, important, um, socially important fields like medicine or law, doctors and lawyers are have to have to sign a code of ethics when they start into their practice. So doctors signing the Hippocratic Oath and lawyers are going through to get approved uh, by the bar and they have to uphold those ideals and standards. Journalists don't have to do anything. You can just say to yourself, oh, today I'm a journalist. And there's no, no one's going through any process. No one's giving you like, this is what can and can't be done, should or shouldn't be done. And the industry itself has not answered that question which is why we have to say, should it be government? I don't think we should ever be a point at a point where a the proverbial fourth estate is leaving it to somebody else to fix that problem. So I do think there is definitely a regulatory hole uh, when it comes to journalism. I don't think it's going to be government that's going to solve it adequately. And it doesn't seem like the media is very interested in solving it either. Because again, when, when we look at what their concerns are right now, it's ratings. Like CNN, why is CNN like in a in a, in a proverbial tailspin? It's because their ratings are diving. It's not because people are losing trust in the brand. That's the bigger issue. But they're really concerned about the ratings because that's about their advertisers and that's about their revenues and that's about their share price. And that's what matters to the corporate parent. So I think until we look more carefully at the business model and think, how can a business model structurally address these issues? We're never going to have any kind of regulatory mechanism. But I still think that in the meantime, it's incumbent upon journalism to be having these conversations about like the one I raised on Twitter, which is like really kind of it's important and and it's small enough that it's just a conversation that could be had um, even on a panel, but nobody's having it. So I think it's time that it starts. Great. So that's probably a good place to wrap it up. Um, thanks so much for the conversation. It's been uh, wide ranging Thank and you. fun. Yeah. And um, yeah, I do very much recommend people check out the gray lady winked. I will put a link in the show notes. And so as I said, it really, um, you know, I, it's, it's something I've, you know, the, the sort of uh, New York times, 
and it's um, massive sort of footprint and, um, you know, it's many, uh, it's many flaws and failings have been um, something I've thought about for many years, but this really uh, offered both, you know, stories I wasn't aware of as well as just a, a different way of thinking about it than I think the standard narratives tend to point to. So. Thank you. I appreciate so, that. I really do. Yeah. Well, thanks so much. And check out the book. All right. Thank you, Jeff.